0: I'm going to read before Dan comes to speak to us in uh, this continuing series on the Church in Corinth, Um, and the series is called "Love Affair with Problems," and we're reading the first letter of Paul to the Church in Corinth, and I'm going to read it from a a modern translation which goes under the title of "Now," and I'm going to read it um, because, for me, it speaks in a way that's very accessible, and. um, I think that helps us maybe to hear things that are maybe very familiar in a conventional writing. Hear them afresh with a different different maybe aspect to them without changing the meaning of the words really. At the end of chapter 3, we've heard that Paul has been chastising the church, particularly for their taking sides in a a sort of one-upmanship battle between Apollos and Paul and, well, I'm a better Christian than you, and all getting on their high horses about it, and he's really challenging them about it and saying that it's a very ungodly way for the church to behave. And he actually ends that chapter with some words which reflect, really, in the song that Tim has just played us, um, which in this translation reads, at the end of chapter 3, Everything that God has given to Jesus, his son, is now also ours because we're one with him. And then we get these lines, He's king of everything. Of those of us who told you the good news of life, of death, of this world and the world to come. He's king of everything. And then I'm reading on into chapter 4. See us for what we are then. Nothing more than servants of Jesus, explaining the mysteries of God to you. Anyone commissioned to a task is expected to fulfill it to the letter. I'm not swayed by what you or others think of me. I don't even take note of what I think of myself. I'm only interested in what Jesus thinks of me. Because he alone can give a truly accurate and fair assessment of anyone or anything. So don't try to do his job for him. He'll do it when he's ready. And no one will ever be able to say that it wasn't fair Perfect judgment reviews all the evidence and is transparent. And Jesus will lay bare every moment of our lives and uncover every last word and thought, even the things we've hidden away from ourselves. He'll ensure that everyone has a fair hearing and a just verdict. Surely now you can see the futility of taking pride in any one of us. How could that make you better than anyone else? Everything you have is a gift from God. So how can you take the credit for any of it? You seem to think you've made it on your own. Gaining everything you need without any help from us. You think you've become kings all of a sudden. Sounds marvelous. I wish it were true. And we could all be kings together. The reality is is that we apostles are at the back of the line, like prisoners of war, paraded by a conquering general before being slaughtered for the amusement of the world. We've been made a laughing stock. We're regarded as idiots for trusting in Jesus, as weaklings deserving disdain. How come you're so clever, so strong, so worthy of respect? We don't have enough to eat or drink. Our clothes are worn out. We have no home. We suffer brutality at the hands of others, and we work our own to the bone to make ends meet. When people curse us, we bless them. We endure their persecutions. And when they tell lies about us, we speak well of them. I don't exaggerate when I say, we've become as scum of the earth, And I'm not saying all of this to make you feel guilty. I'm warning you as a parent warns a child. You have many people to guard and guide you in the faith. But only one who brought you to this new birth. So, model yourself on me. To this end, I've asked Timothy, another of my spiritual children, to visit you. And he will testify to the integrity of the way I lived among you and what I now teach everywhere. Some of you have grown so cocky, like children who think their parents won't be back for a while. But I will be back, if God allows. And then we'll see whether my proclamation of the cross is just hot air or whether it is real power. The kingdom of God is not a talking shop, but a powerhouse. So make your choice. Am I going to have to come to you with tough love or not? Thank you for reading that,
1: Martin. That was excellent. I like that translation. I was tempted to um, ask my daughter to read it to you this morning, actually. She she woke me up and said, uh, Daddy, can I take my Bible... To church today, I said yes, of course you can. She said, "I want to be a pasty." <laughs> I think she meant pastor. <laughs> Nothing keeps you humble like children. Um, maybe she meant pasty. <laughs> the the team that, that were here yesterday um, have asked that I, I have a we have a very short sermon today, um, so they can head home and sleep. I'm slightly concerned about staying awake myself. Um, It'll be quite something if the preacher falls asleep before the congregation. Um, But we'll do our best to get through it anyway. We're going to be looking, as Martin said already, um, at this ancient letter of Paul's to the church in Corinth. Not a church, perhaps, as we would think of it, but more a gathering of people who had believed Paul when he travelled to them and told them about Jesus and how he had died for them and how they could have a new life free from sin. And it's a gathering um, of people that were trying to work out what it looked like to follow Jesus in a world that was intellectually proud, materially prosperous and morally corrupt. Let me just turn that on as well. I told you I was tired. There we go. A place that's not too different from today. Of course, things look very different today. Um, We have cars and iPhones and Snapchat and McDonald's. Um, But the sins essentially remain the same. We don't invent new sin. We just invent new ways of expressing it. We're still proud, aren't we? Proud of our intellect and our accomplishments and our status. We still strive for material things. Fame and fortune as though the latest gadget is going to make us happy. And we're still morally corrupt. We still lie and cheat and steal. We're still motivated by selfish desires. There's a darkness in all of us. Paul, in his letter, calls it our sinful nature. And I think he's right. I think that's why we needed Jesus to come and set us free from all of that. So this church that Paul's writing to is a gathering of people that are trying to figure it all out. How to live in this world and still follow Jesus. And they were a relatively new church, newer in fact than this church even. And they didn't have the 2,000 years of church history that we have to fall back on. They don't have the resources that we have. They didn't have Bibles like we have or the internet like we have. So when they wanted answers, when they had issues, they needed to turn to Christian leaders who knew the words of Jesus well. And so Paul is writing them this letter to help them sort out some of the issues that had arisen in the church. Help them to figure out how to live um, as Christians, how to follow Jesus in the world. So let's just briefly recap the last uh, four weeks or so, if you're just joining us or if you've been to sleep since then. If you remember in chapter 1, uh, Paul said he'd had reports from Chloe's household. Uh, not good reports. Paul had heard about certain goings-on in the church, and he realized that the church had gone a little bit wonky. Okay, That's from the Greek. Um, (laughs) Its foundation had slipped, and this division had arose in the church, this division that, that Martin was just speaking about, and it was all to do with the different voices the church had had, the different ministers of God that had visited them. And Paul mentions three. He mentions himself. He was the one who founded the church. He was the one who told on the message originally. He mentions Apollos, who followed after him. And he mentions Cephas, which is the Greek name for Peter. Peter is the one we read about in the Gospels, who was with Jesus. Uh, And we don't know whether Peter visited the church in Corinth or whether some from the church went to Jerusalem and heard Peter preach. Um, We don't know. But the arguments were about who was best. Who was the best speaker? Who gave the best sermons to the people? I I know we don't have those issues in this church. That's, that's not something that we argue about here. But Paul deals with this. He says, it doesn't matter who the best speaker is, because the message is foolish. <coughs> unless, <laughs> unless it's accompanied by God's Spirit. It doesn't matter who's got the best PowerPoints. It doesn't matter who has the most exuberant preacher hands. I've developed the worst case of preacher hands since I started this job. <laughs> My life group constantly take the mick out of me for it now. I try and... I'll keep them down. But he says it doesn't matter because the message is foolish unless it's accompanied by God. And then in chapter 2, he says, this is what we speak. Not with words taught by human wisdom, but with words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. And then chapter 3, which is what Steve preached on last week. He's still on the same topic. He hasn't moved off the topic yet. And he says, you've got to stop claiming to follow me or or Cephas or Apollos because we're not the ones that are going to make you grow. That's God, not man. He says, if you want to grow up, you need to come back to Jesus. He says, because me and Apollos, we're just servants. In order to be less wonky, you need to come back to Jesus. You need him as the foundation. You've got to get the foundation right. You need Jesus as the cornerstone. So that was a brief paraphrase, and it was a paraphrase. Wonky's not in the Bible in case you're trying to find it. So here we are at the start of chapter 4. And Paul is about to make his final point on this topic. Same topic, final point. And he says, This then is how you ought to to regard us. How you should view me and Apollos and Cephas. He said, you know, we're not to be followed. Don't put us on a pedestal. Don't make our accomplishments out to be anything miraculous because it's all God. But you should think of us this way. And just before I carry on, people often read this chapter and they see it. Um, as advice on how you should be a minister or a pastor of God. And I've heard it preached, you know, tips for the pastor or things like that. Um, I think the NIV even has the heading, um, the nature of an apostle at the start. But Paul isn't just telling them these things because he he wants this to be advice for ministers. If you scan down to verse 16, it says, I urge you to imitate me. So these are principles that Paul is giving here for all Christians, not just himself. So, don't switch off. So, he says, This then is how you should view us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Let's break that down one bite at a time. So, first of all, he says that they, so that's him and the other church leaders, should be regarded as servants. Now, there's a couple of different words that are used for servants in the New Testament. And the one that Paul uses here is huperetes, which is fun to say. Would you like a go? Huperetes. Very good. Now, it's, in its broadest meaning, that is somebody who acts as an assistant to another, but remains a free person. Okay? But the literal meaning is even more interesting. Because literally, it means under rowers. Not underwearers. under rowers. Okay, And it's a term that's borrowed from the military life of the Roman Empire. Remember at this point, Corinth was a Roman colony. Okay, So this was very appropriate to the ones that he was writing to. And an under-rower was someone who served on a Roman war galley. All right? That's what they look like. Uh, and these types of ships would have been seen in Corinth all the time. If you remember from week one, Corinth was coastal, and there was that thin strip of land just above it, the Isthmus, and they would have taken the ships on land across that strip from east to west and west to east because it was easier than trying to sail round uh, the bottom. And the ships had uh, a lower deck. It was only about a foot above the water. And that's where all the rowers would sit. And then on the prow of the ship, there'd be a slightly raised platform where the, the director or captain would stand. And so the idea was that all the rowers could see the director. And then the captain would issue orders... For the rowers. And the, the orders had to be obeyed immediately, because this is a war galley. You can't rely on um, the wind, it's not a nice sort of jolly on the Norfolk broads, so you had to respond quickly. So if you said stop, you had to stop. If he said port, you had to turn left, right? Left? Left? Right. Starboard right? Yeah, okay. But you had to do it if you wanted to survive the battle. And so as an under rower... Your job was to keep your eyes fixed on the captain, on the director. And in Paul's eyes, Jesus was the captain. Not other Christian leaders, not the world around him, but Jesus. So Paul is saying, think of me as one who keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus. Or to put it another way, my task is to be obedient And this is such a challenge for us, isn't it? How many of us can say that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and only Jesus? How do we even do that? How do we keep our eyes fixed on him? Well, firstly, it's about knowing his direction, isn't it? It's about knowing him. The Corinthians didn't have his word. They didn't have the Bible, but we do. I know we've been encouraging you the last few weeks to bring the Bibles to church so that you can start to really get to know these teachings that are in there. And we can turn to the Bible when we're struggling uh, to look for answers. And we can also pray. You know, the nice thing about Jesus is that he's alive today. So we can actually pray to him and look to him for direction. And we can also make sure that nobody else is leading us astray. Nobody's giving us conflicting directions to follow. You know, Jesus himself said that no one can serve two masters. Either you love one and hate the other, or you be devoted to one and despise the other. And Paul says he's responsible to Jesus alone. Something interesting something else interesting about this analogy is that if Paul was the only rower, the ship wouldn't go anywhere. In fact it would go in circles very slowly. <laughs> you need other rowers to make it work. And Roman war galleys had about two hundred people that would row them. There's about the same number that are in this church. Not this morning, because it's a bank holiday weekend. But normally, that's about the same number that are here. And you need all the rowers to be going in the same direction. Otherwise, you're not going to go anywhere fast. And this was an incredible picture to give to Corinth, the church that was struggling with this division, with following different people and going in different directions. He said, if you're hoping to to win this battle, to go forward, you all need to get your eyes fixed on Jesus and Him alone. You know, on one occasion, Jesus was speaking to Cephas, to Peter, one of the people that the Corinthian church was following. And he said, I tell you that you are Peter, and the name Peter means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. I will build it. Jesus. He uses us, he uses Peter and Paul, but only if our eyes are fixed on Jesus. So if you want to be used by God, you need to make sure you're looking in the right direction. The next bit, Paul said, you should regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. So the NIV says those entrusted, um, but the word here is oikonomos. You want to try that one? Oikonomos. Very good. And it's the word for housekeeper. Uh, or steward, I think sometimes I can say steward, that's a pretty good translation. It's someone who serves the household, someone who deals with the concerns of the family, provides food um, for the household. And they need to be trustworthy because they're entrusted with certain valuable commodities uh, like the silverware or the, the fine china. It's all a bit down to Abbey, hasn't it? Um, but the commodity that Paul's talking about is not something that's perishable, But what he calls the mysteries of God. Which is an odd phrase, the mysteries of God. But for Paul, this is the truth that he had received. For us, this is the truth that's found in scripture. Remember two weeks ago, uh, Paul said that he resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is one of the mysteries of God. That a man on a cross could free us. From our sin, And it's a mystery that Paul feels he's been entrusted with. He adds, it's required of those that have been given a trust must prove faithful. Faithful in what? Well, faithful in receiving, but also faithful in dispensing that truth to others. And Paul saw it as his responsibility to take that mystery, that message, and give it to others, give it to the house of God. Hello. No need to whistle at me. (laughs) And sometimes people keep the mysteries of God to themselves, don't they? Sometimes, you know, they receive it when they come to faith and they see their lives transformed. Because that's what happens when we hear that message and, and we accept it. And when the Spirit speaks to us, our lives change. Things become better. Things become different for us. And it goes deep inside of us and it makes us new. But then they forget to give it away to others. They hold on to it. Maybe out of fear of losing it. Maybe they lose lose something of God's spirit and become less sure of the message inside of them. You know, that message of salvation, the way to heaven, the means of finding forgiveness and a new start with God. These are the sorts of mysteries that I'm talking about. I spoke to you three weeks ago about the power that's contained within the message of the cross, the evidence that's seen in the lives of those that believe in Jesus. Jesus. But it's not a message that can be buried in the ground. It's a message that needs to be shared. It's a message that needs to be given to others. It reminds me of a story that Jesus told in um, Matthew chapter 25. You can read it um, yourselves, but I'm just going to give you a a paraphrase this morning. And it's a message of a man who goes on a journey and he leaves his servants in charge of his property or his, his stewards, if you like. And he gives each of them a different amount. To the first person, he gives five talents. And a talent is um, an amount of money that's equivalent to about 20 years of wages for a labourer. So it's, it's not a small amount. It's a decent amount of money. And he gives the first five. He gives the second two. And he gives the third one. And the first guy takes the money that he's given, the five talents, and he goes out trading the money and he manages to turn the five into ten. And the second guy does the same and he turns the two into four. But the third guy is concerned, he's afraid that he might lose the money and that his master might be angry at him. So he buries it in the ground, he keeps it hidden and keeps it safe. And when the master comes back, he's overjoyed at the first two. And it didn't matter to him that one had made ten and the other had made four. The amount isn't important because his response is the same to both. What mattered was that they had used what they'd been given to increase the master's estate. But he was displeased with the third servant. Although he had kept the money safe and hidden, he'd missed the point. Because he'd been given a responsibility and he'd failed to live up to it. He was untrustworthy. And this is how Paul saw it. This is how Paul understood his responsibility. Later in this letter, he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. He says, God has revealed this truth to me. He's given me something, and I've got to pass it on. I've just got to. And it doesn't matter if you've got one talent or two or five or half. What matters is that we're faithful with the things that we've been given. That we use them in the right way with the right motives. All right, we better get a move on. That's only the first two verses. You we'll have to do some of this for homework. <clears> he <throat> carries on the letter. He says, "I care very little." If I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes and he will bring light to what is hidden in the darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So some of the Corinthians had um, too high a view of Paul. They were very much, Paul is the only way. We have to follow Paul and nobody else. Um, Others had too low a view of Paul. They weren't interested in Paul anymore. They'd found new and more exciting teachers. And Paul says, I'm not bothered. Whatever. I'm not interested in that. He said he's also not interested in what the world thinks of him. He's already described himself as a fool for Christ. And he says, I don't even judge myself. it doesn't mean he doesn't look at himself or evaluate himself or in what he's doing because he does and in fact he tells us to do the same. In his second letter to the Corinthians he says, examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. It simply means that we can't accept our own judgment of ourselves because very much like the Corinthian church, our own judgment can be too low or too high And I've known people that have been really down on themselves for their contribution to the church or to the faith. And they see everybody else's roles as more important than theirs. And they think, I've got nothing to give. I've got nothing of value. And maybe that's you this morning. But I want to tell you that you can't trust that judgment because God can use the smallest of gestures if done with the right motives, in the most incredible ways. That's really important. You know, when I was younger, I um, was a very shy um, and reserved, I know you don't believe me, but I was, I swear, um, person. I I really struggled with with, with making friends and fitting in with the crowd. Um, And I remember being invited uh, away to a, a, a weekend, a church weekend, um, with the youth. And uh, I, was, I was not enjoying it. I felt very much on my own. And uh, I can remember very little about that event now. I can't really remember the, the, who, what, what the, the theme was. I can't remember who spoke. I can't remember what scriptures were talked about. I can't remember the songs. I can't even remember what the place looked like. But the one thing that stuck with me all these years is that during one of the meal mealtimes, um, an, an older girl, and it's not important that it's a girl, um, invited me to come and sit on their table during dinner. And it just made me feel included, it made me feel a part of everything, and because of it I started having a better time, I carried on going to the church, Um, my faith increased because of it, and it was the smallest, smallest of gestures that would have, I'm sure she didn't think twice about it, but to me it made all the difference. So we really can't ever judge our contribution as too low. Because God can use the smallest of things. Some people go the opposite way. Some people get too big headed. And this seems to be the case here in Corinth. Uh, In verse 6, Paul calls them uh, puffed up. Which is quite good. Um, And then he asks them three questions. He says, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And these three questions are Paul's way of trying to reveal the heart of the church at Corinth. To show them their real motives. Sort of like, um, you ever do those online quizzes? Which Harry Potter character are you? Or what colour is your soul? Or, you know, one of those things. This one might be called, what type of church are you? And if the Corinthians had answered honestly, they could see that they are a church that's filled with pride. So what does he say? He says, what makes you different from anyone else? Paul's point is that if there's a difference in us, it's because of God. Not your own accomplishments, not the things that you've done. What do you have that you do not receive? Paul's point is that everything that we have comes from God. Our health, our strength, our abilities, our spiritual gifts. You know, back in chapter 1 he said to them that you've been enriched in every way. But he says it's all from God. And you're boasting like it isn't. If you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You can't behave this way as if it's your own accomplishment. If it's God that's given it to you. And then to really drive the point home, Paul adop- uh, adopts an ancient discipline technique. Okay? It's called sarcasm. And he contrasts the view the Corinthians held of themselves with the reality of his life. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that's without us. You can sense his tone, can't you? And I think Martin's translation, as you read earlier, you know, he makes them out to be kings. That's what he says to them, you've become kings. And then he offers this third picture to go alongside the under and the housekeeper. He says, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. And this is another Roman illustration. And Roman generals, after a great battle, would march back into the city uh, with their armies behind them to great cheers and, and uproar to celebrate the victory. And at the very back of the procession would be the prisoners of war, those captured during battle, naked and in chains, heading to the arena to be killed. And you notice that Paul's illustrations become progressively lower we start with a free man who acts in service to another the under rower and then the household servant but someone that's entrusted with responsibility and now he's talking about being a slave that's condemned to die made to look foolish in the sight of others and what he's trying to do is provide a contrast to their pride to show them something of the reality of following Jesus you know, Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And the reality is, if we, fa- if we follow Jesus, we are going to face opposition. Paul did it all the time. He was kicked and chased out of places. He was nearly stoned to death on occasions. If you read through Acts, you can find out the, the extent of the opposition that he faced. I just want to read you um, verses 9 to 13 from the message paraphrase. Because I really like the way it puts it. It seems to me that God has put us who bear his message on stage in a theatre in which no one wants to buy a ticket. We're something everyone stands around and stares at like an accident in the street. We're the Messiah's misfits. You might be sure of yourselves, but we live in the midst of frailties and uncertainties. You might be well thought of by others, but we are mostly kicked around. Much of the time, we don't have enough to eat. We wear patched and threadbare clothes. We get doors slammed in our faces. And we pick up odd jobs anywhere we can to eke out a living. And when they call us names, we say, God bless you. When they spread rumors about us, we put in a good word for them. We are treated like garbage. Potato peelings from culture's kitchen. And it's not getting any better. Messiah Misfits and Potato Peelings. Very glamorous, is it? But you know, Paul isn't trying to make them feel bad about themselves. What he wants to do is shake them from their proud nature. Because the pride was the root of their issues. All the division, all the infighting, all the arguments were to do with their pride. And it was preventing them from growing in their faith. In verse 14, he says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. And Paul loved the Corinthian church. He loved it as a father. He saw himself as a spiritual father whose desire was to see the church grow. And that's why he says, if you're ever going to grow up spiritually, you need to imitate me. You know that saying, uh, do as I say, not as I do? (laughs) Paul said, do as I do. And as I say, he was able to say that because he lived that life. Many of us aren't able to say that. So he said, you need to imitate me. You need to see yourself as under rowers. Someone whose eyes are fixed only on Jesus. Not worried about what others are saying, or what the world is saying, or even what you think about yourself. And you need to behave as a household steward, Who is entrusted with the most precious things. The mysteries of God. Not to be held tight, but to be used to expand the kingdom. And you need to do away with your pride in your own accomplishments. Stop glorifying in yourself because everything you have is a gift from God. And you need to be prepared to face difficulties. For the world to treat you as a misfit. A hospital visitor... Once saw a nurse tending to the sores of a leprosy patient, and said, "I'd never do that, not for a million dollars." The nurse answered, "Neither would I, but I do it for Jesus, for nothing." Can we be underoers, housekeepers, and potato peelings for Jesus? There's a question. There's a challenge. Tim, would you like to come back with the band? And we'll just uh, close in prayer.